Robert Durst became one of the most recognizable names in the true crime community when the docu-series The Jinx was released in 2015. The day before the final episode was released, Durst was arrested for murder. But this was far from the only crime he had been named a suspect in. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. If you are a first-time listener, yikes, that is unfortunate. This is the second of a two-part series, so you are going to have to back up an episode and start there. But if you listened last week, you have been waiting a week to hear part two, so I'm going to forego any announcements or begging for five-star reviews and jump right in. Last week, we talked about three disappearances in which Robert Durst has been named a suspect or a person of interest, Lynn Schultz, Kathy Durst, and Karen Mitchell. When we left off, it was the year 2000. Kathy Durst had been missing for 18 years, and the police just started a reinvestigation of the cold case based on a tip. The theory had long been that Kathy Durst went missing in New York City after returning from a weekend away with her husband Robert at a cottage they owned near the New York-Connecticut border. This theory was based on a few things. One was Robert's claim that he called their New York apartment from the cottage and spoke to Kathy. There was also a phone call made on February 1st after Kathy was supposedly back in the city. She called her school to tell them she was sick and wasn't coming in. And then there were at least two people at the apartment building who claimed they saw her there. But it was during the 2000 reinvestigation that some of these things came into question. For one, yes, the dean thought it was Kathy on the phone, but it could have been someone else. And the sightings of Kathy at the New York apartment building were shaky at best, with one of the people saying that he only saw her from the back and assumed it was her. And then investigators learned that Robert may have lied about where he was immediately after Kathy's disappearance. He claimed he was at the cottage, yet someone made four collect calls from a payphone on the Jersey Shore to Robert's office in New York. These were made two days after Kathy went missing, and this collect calling into the office thing was something Robert would do when he was away. And of course, you have to wonder who else would call his office collect. Of course, this new information pointed right to Robert Durst's direction, and he became the focus of the investigation. And they were no longer investigating a missing persons case so much as a homicide. With Robert's possible trip to New Jersey, they started wondering if Kathy had been buried out in the Pine Barrens. Robert heard pretty quickly that this reinvestigation was happening. It would have been late October 2000 that he found out. So in November, he signed a lease to a small apartment in Galveston, Texas, under an assumed identity. This apartment was a fourplex with one apartment across the hall and two upstairs. It's not the type of place you would expect to find a millionaire. The rent was very low, just $300 a month. And the apartments were tiny. This was really a bungalow that's smaller than my single family home, and it was carved out into four apartments. Robert rented the place under the name Dorothy Siner. He dressed as a woman to hide his identity, and with his slight build, apparently he pulled it off. The only thing was his voice. Robert Durst has a very distinct voice. Let me play you a quick clip in case you've never heard him speak so you can hear what I mean. And the L.A. police have been investigating for a while now. 
and they're unable to put him in Los Angeles. Without the acting skills required to hide that New York accent or that gravelly sound, Robert decided to pretend he was deaf so he wouldn't have to speak as Dorothy. Robert reappeared in New York a month after signing the lease to the place in Galveston, and he secretly married Deborah Sheridan, his on-again, off-again girlfriend, who may have been a platonic friend at this point. Why they got married is speculation because a few reasons have been given. They don't appear to have lived together after this or had a romantic relationship, and Robert himself said it was a marriage of convenience. Kathy Durst's family alleges that the marriage was a payoff to Deborah to keep her mouth shut about whatever she knew about Kathy's disappearance. While Deborah didn't know Robert when Kathy went missing, she never met Kathy Durst. The family alleges that he later confided in her. Spousal privilege would kick in and keep the authorities from forcing her to answer questions during the reinvestigation, and the money she received as Robert Durst's wife and heir would keep her from volunteering that information. That said, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that Deborah knows anything. It's possible this marriage was just logistical. Robert was going underground, but he wasn't going to actually get a job. The only way to pay his living expenses, no matter how modest they were, would be to access the money he was getting from the family trust. Deborah, as his wife, could easily do this and send him the money he needed to live off of. Another reason proposed was that Robert was actually contemplating suicide at some point, and he realized if he died, all of his wealth would go back to his family since he had no heirs. He married Deborah, so she would get the money and his family would not. Seeing as Robert did go underground and did have Deborah managing his finances, I think That is the most likely reason they got married was so that Deborah could help him access his money. Robert did not go straight to Texas after the wedding, though. He left to go spend the holidays with his friend Susan Berman in Los Angeles. If you remember from last week, Robert and Susan met at UCLA in the 1960s and became very close friends. So let's talk a little bit about Susan. Susan was the only child of Davey and Grace Berman. Davey was in the mob. Sometimes he's referred to as one of Bugsy Siegel's lieutenants. So Susan grew up in Las Vegas with her father running hotels and casinos and living that lifestyle. By the time she was 14, though, Susan had lost both of her parents. Her father died in surgery, and her mother died of a barbiturate overdose, both dying about a year apart. Not only did Susan suffer this traumatic double loss, she was moved from Las Vegas to her uncle's house in Idaho and also sent to boarding school. What a huge change in her scenery and her lifestyle. She left everything and most everyone she knew. After high school, Susan went to UCLA, which, like I said, is where she met Robert Durst. She then went on to get a master's in journalism at UC Berkeley. Though she and Robert only had a few overlapping years at UCLA, they did become lifelong friends. Their relationship was platonic, and it appears always had been. And when Robert married Kathy, Susan and Kathy became friends too. This was only strengthened when Susan moved to New York, where she worked as a journalist and author. The book Susan Berman is best known for is called Easy Street, and it's her memoir about growing up in a mob family. It was published the year before Kathy Durst went missing, and then Susan, like I said last week, acted as Robert's spokesperson in the wake of Kathy's disappearance. But Susan soon moved back 
to California, where Robert regularly visited her. And again, they remained close. So close that when Susan married in 1984, Robert walked her down the aisle. The marriage, however, did not last long, and in 1987, Susan met Paul Kaufman, and he moved in with his two children. Susan, having not had children or raised children before, took to parenting in a way few would. Both of Paul's children bonded with her, and they felt they had an attentive parent in Susan. Even after the relationship ended five years later, they both still considered Susan their parent. You'll see them referred to as her stepchildren in pretty much all the media reporting. The end of the relationship also marked a time when Susan was in deep financial trouble. She had supplemented her writing career with her trust fund, but after sinking money into a failed project, Susan had pretty much nothing left. She lost her home and had to move into a rented house in Benedict Canyon, which is a neighborhood in L.A. Susan worked pretty consistently, even working on big projects like two fiction novels and a series on A&D about Las Vegas. But writing doesn't usually pay a lot, and it's a lot of work for what you do earn. I can testify to that. So Susan was doing a lot of work and still barely making ends meet. She started borrowing money from friends just to get by, and it was money she struggled to pay back. So she started running out of people to turn to. In mid to late 2000, Susan asked Robert Durst if she could borrow $7,000. She needed to catch up on her rent and buy a car. This would cover a reliable but affordable vehicle. Reports say that the letter was sent in August, and other reports say November, but from what I'm gathering, there were actually two letters and two checks sent, because the November letter refers to an earlier request for money. Dated November 5th, Susan wrote that she didn't want her last letter of her asking for money to be the last time they were in touch, and she seemed apologetic about needing help. This letter also mentioned the new investigation into Kathy's disappearance and how the authorities would probably want to talk to her. According to Robert, Susan also told him that she had been contacted by detectives both in New York and L.A., After this November letter, Robert sent Susan a $25,000 check, which was the second check he sent her for that amount. So really within a few months, he had sent her $50,000 and he told her that she did not have to pay him back. Now, Susan was 100% one of the people the police wanted to talk to about Kathy's disappearance, but they had not reached out to her yet. But whatever she said to Robert, either she told him they did, or he interpreted what she said in that way. And investigators allege that the belief that Susan was going to speak with authorities and the fear that she would not stay loyal and or silent for Robert Durst is what led to her death. It was December 22nd, 2000, over a month since Robert had sent her the second check, when Susan went out with her friend Richard. She dropped him off at his house around 10.30 at night and then headed home. Two days later, on December 24th, Susan's neighbors called the police. Her dogs were running free, which was not something they usually saw. These dogs were Susan's pride and joy, They never got out. They were never let off leash just to roam the neighborhood. Additionally, Susan's door was open, which was also an incredibly rare thing to see. Susan was lively, funny, and energetic, but she also dealt with significant phobias. In addition to her severe fear of heights, 
She was also very security conscious. She nailed windows shut. She always used her deadbolt. Even if she was just stepping out for a short time, she would lock the door behind her. Her door was simply just never open unless someone was literally in the middle of walking through it. As soon as they were through it, she would shut and lock the door. The police responded to Susan's home based on this welfare check call from the neighbors, and when they walked in, they found Susan on the floor, dead from a single shot to the back of her head. There were no signs of a forced entry, and given that Susan always kept her door locked, it was assumed she let her killer in. On December 27th, three days after Susan's body was found, the Beverly Hills Police received an anonymous letter. Inside was a note that gave Susan's address and just said the word cadaver. The letter was written in block-style printing. The postmark on this letter was Marina Del Rey, which was just 17 miles from Susan's home, and it was stamped on December 23rd. It took four days to make it to the police station, possibly due to the holiday mail rush that was happening, but it's also possible because the writer did not fill out the address of the police station. They just wrote Beverly Hills Police and stuck a stamp on it. Based on the postmark, the note was written before Susan's body was found. So clearly, this person had special knowledge that there was a body at that address. But the most important part of this note was the way it was addressed on the envelope. It was to the Beverly Hills Police, but Beverly was spelled incorrectly. It was spelled with an E between the L and the Y, like the ending of Berkeley. Those who know this story already know the misspelling is important, but if you don't know the story, just make a mental note of the spelling error because it's going to come back up. A few weeks after Susan was found, the LAPD received another letter postmarked January 9th coming from New York. It said, possible motive for Susan Berman murder. And then it went on to say that Susan thought Robert was involved in Kathy's disappearance, and he had plans to visit Susan at the time she was killed. This is backed up by some friends of Susan's who said she told them Robert was coming for Christmas. The January 9th letter was typewritten, and it's not known who sent it. Investigators did speak to Robert over the phone in connection with Susan's death, and they reached him a few times. He confirmed some things, like how he sent her money to help her out. He also sent the police Susan's statement from 1982 in relation to Kathy's disappearance. Robert declined to be formally interviewed in regards to Susan's murder because of the investigation into Kathy's disappearance and how it was focusing on him. But he did speak to investigators, like I said, a couple times over the phone. But even with the tip that Robert might be involved, he didn't immediately rise to the top as the main suspect. He was on the list, but he wasn't there alone. Susan's manager was also suspected. They had what some have described as a love-hate relationship. There was also talk that the murder went back to Susan's father's mob ties. Even though he had been dead for 40 years at that point, Susan had written about the mob and Las Vegas in the past, and she clearly needed money now, so maybe she did have more papers from her father that she planned to turn into a tell-all, and she was killed to stop that from going forward. So you can see the LAPD were pursuing a few leads at the time. 
Meanwhile, 58-year-old Robert Durst moved into his low-rent Galveston home. Though Robert had signed the lease in November, he hadn't really been living there full-time until after Susan's death. In the weeks after he settled in, 71-year-old Morris Black moved in across the hall. Morris Black was a cantankerous old man. There's not really any other way to say it. But he also wanted to help people out when he saw a need. For one example, he went online and realized that you could buy the same reading glasses that stores sell for $10 a pair for pretty much nothing if you bought them in bulk from a supplier. He asked a local charity shop to purchase the glasses, and then he would oversee handing them out for free. The store didn't have that kind of money to invest in his project up front. Plus, they knew Morris was kind of a nightmare to work with, so they said no. Morris was annoyed, but he seemed to move on. Then shortly after that, suddenly Morris shows back up with a bunch of reading glasses, handing them out to the homeless. It's not clear where he got the money, but he managed to start this reading glasses program that he dreamed up. However, Morris being Morris, ended the program abruptly after a couple of months because he complained about all of the freeloaders. It's really sad that we don't know a lot about Morris as a person outside of this snapshot of him in his later years, clearly dealing with some mental health issues. He would get into arguments with people, screaming and cursing at them. He was once arrested for threatening to blow up the electric company because he thought they overcharged him by $16. He was almost evicted from the apartment across from Robert Durst in the summer of 2001 because he threw a fit over, yet again, his electric bill. This time, he believed he was being overcharged $19. He never turned on his air conditioner, which is something that is hard to fathom in Galveston, But given his obsessive concern over his electric bill, I can see how it made sense to him. The tenants who lived above Morris and Robert would say that Morris would get into arguments with this neighbor across the hall, but not really her because she was deaf and she never spoke. It was her brother-in-law he would fight with over the television being too loud. Now, of course, Dorothy and her brother-in-law were both being played by Robert Durst. But Robert claimed that he and Morris became friends of some sort, so Morris must have known that Robert and Dorothy were the same person. This seems like an unlikely friendship just because Robert was supposed to be hiding out and Morris didn't exactly go around making friends. A private investigator named Bobby Baca said that this was actually not a coincidence that Robert and Morris ended up as neighbors in this fourplex, saying that Morris and his brother Meyer had actually worked for a farm owned by the Durst organization, and they actually already knew Robert. This does seem kind of intriguing because the two brothers ended up having a lot of money after growing up dirt poor and working for a farm. Bobby questions how they got that money. It's a good question because Morris worked entry-level jobs most of his life. He got into arguments over $16, and he was drawing what I assume was the minimum Social Security payment each month. Yet, he had nine bank accounts all in South Dakota, with over $135,000 in them. It has not been definitively linked that that money came from Robert Durst or why Robert would have paid Morris anything at all. But of course, the speculation is 
that Morris did know Robert before this, and either he knew what happened to Kathy, or he even helped cover it up. That would make this hush money. But regardless of that little journey down the speculation highway, Morris and Robert definitely knew each other in Galveston well enough, according to Robert, that Morris had a key to his apartment. Robert said that on September 28, 2001, he got back to his apartment and found Morris in there watching TV. He could tell Morris was angry with him. Morris had Robert's gun, which was one he left stashed in the oven, and he pointed it at Robert. Robert grabbed for the barrel and pulled, but Morris had a firm grip on the gun. So instead of just yanking the gun, Robert ended up with Morris lurching forward too. The two tripped and fell to the ground. As they fell, the gun went off. Morris was hit in the face. Robert got up. He ran upstairs to try to find a neighbor to call 911, but no one answered their door. So Robert went back downstairs, and it occurred to him that this was not going to look good for him. He was already a suspect in the disappearance of his wife. He was living in hiding, dressed as a woman in a tiny apartment well below his means. It all looked very suspicious, and why would the police believe him that this was self-defense slash an accident. So instead of calling 911 himself, Robert began cleaning up the scene and making plans to get rid of Morris's body. He realized he would never be able to just carry the body out, so he decided to dismember it. Robert said that Morris, who, let's remember, was largely transient and lived in a very small apartment, just so happened to have a saw, a hammer, and an axe laying around. Using these items, he dismembered Morris's body. What Robert didn't have on hand were large plastic trash bags, so he went to the store for those. Then he put Morris's remains in separate bags. He drove the bags out to Galveston Bay, where he dumped them. Robert did his best to clean the apartments, and then he got a money order in Morris's name to pay the October rent, which would keep the landlord from coming to look for Morris or noticing that he was missing. Then Robert checked into a hotel room at a local resort. What Robert didn't plan for was that Morris's body would wash up the very next day. A boy and his father were out fishing in the bay when they found the bags and called the police. Morris's arms, legs, and torso were all recovered, but his head was not. In spite of his head not being found, Morris was actually identified very quickly a piece of newspaper was in one of the bags, and it had an address label on it that led detectives right to where Robert and Morris lived. There were only four tenants at that address, so they were very quickly able to narrow down who matched the description of the body found. The truth is, Robert Durst also matched the basic description of the body found, but the police didn't know that because an older man didn't rent that apartment. A woman did, and she wasn't home. But in Robert's haste to clean up, he actually threw away something, a receipt that had his actual name on it, and it was found in a trash can outside of the building. He also left the gun behind, and it was, of course, registered in his name, Robert Durst. So this is just proving who really lived there. Robert and Morris's apartments were searched, but Robert wasn't a great housekeeper, apparently, because he didn't get all the blood. There was blood found in the hallway between the apartments and in both apartments. 
Robert had also been seen by one of the other neighbors loading garbage bags into a silver car. So Robert Durst was top of the list prime suspect in Morris's murder. He was arrested on October 9th after a tip to his whereabouts was called in. The police searched the car Robert was driving and they found a handgun, a bag of marijuana, and a bow saw. The police in Texas did not recognize the name Robert Durst. They didn't know he was a suspect in his wife's disappearance, nor did they know that the gun they found on him, a 9mm, was the same caliber weapon as the gun that killed Susan Berman, his best friend. They didn't know any of this. They also didn't know how much money Robert had or how easy it would be for him to disappear. So he was given a bond. Robert called his wife, Deborah, and she arranged for it to be paid. He was released, crossing his heart and promising to show up for his October 16th arraignment. And then Robert Durst took off. While on the lam, he was indicted on charges of murder and bail jumping. He was tracked down first to Alabama, but the police got there after he was gone. He stayed in a hotel for a couple of nights, and then he rented a car. He paid a deposit on the car and a four-week rental, all in the name of Morris Black. Robert had Morris's old driver's license and his Medicare card as proof of identity. It's not clear why someone rented this car to a man with an expired driver's license and who didn't look that much like the guy in the picture. But I guess when someone pays you a huge deposit and four weeks of rent in advance, you ask few questions. Alabama was where police lost Robert's trail. Once he drove away in that rented car, he was off the grid. We know now that he ended up in Atlantic City a month later, where on November 18th, he stole a license plate and put it on the rental car. It makes sense for him to do this because his prepaid four weeks were almost up and the rental car company was going to be reporting the car stolen pretty soon. Then Robert drove around the Northeast. He visited old places he had lived, where he had grown up, where his family was from. And then he walked into a grocery store in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on November 30th. This location was yet another walk down a memory lane because Robert had gone to college there. In the store, Robert caught the attention of the security guard when he opened a box of Band-Aids and took one out. He put it on a small cut he had on his upper lip. Then he picked up a chicken salad sandwich and a newspaper and walked out the front door. The guard followed him into the parking lot and stopped him for shoplifting. This is where this odd situation gets a little odder. Robert was on the run. He seemed to be taking some strides to avoid getting caught, like stealing that license plate for the rental car. But then he shoplifted less than $8 worth of stuff. And it wasn't that he had a lack of funds. He literally had hundreds of dollars in his pocket when he was caught. Because of the low value of the item stolen, Robert wasn't about to be hauled into jail to languish. He could have acted like a confused old man, given a fake name, and been handed a summons to show up in court. Then he would be back free on the run. But instead of this happening, Robert gave them his real name and an actual address in New York that he was connected to. So when they ran the info, of course, it pops up that he was a fugitive. I want to just quickly point out that if you know the Durst name from the Jinx docuseries, it might not be clear that this was not a well-known name prior to that. Outside of the corporate sphere or wealthy circles, 
There just isn't a lot of name recognition here. It's not like Carnegie or Rockefeller or even Trump. The Durst family never made themselves part of popular culture. Well, that is until the jinx. But I did want to mention this because I felt like when I watched the jinx, I was left with the impression that the family was more famous than they are. Honestly, they're just a family who's trying to run their business, doing their best to be rich, and they haven't pursued personal fame or publicity or being a socialite, that sort of thing. That's just not this family. I just wanted to clarify that in case anyone else was left with that impression that I had. It's not clear why Robert Shoplifted. Some think he was trying to get caught, but he had been trying really hard up to that point not to get caught. He didn't need to pinch pennies because in addition to the 500 in his pocket, he had 30-something thousand dollars in the trunk of the car. And through his wife, he had access to the rest of his fortune. But one thing I've learned researching this is that why Robert Durst does anything is a great mystery of this world. Anyway, Robert was extradited to Galveston, where he stood trial for murder. Robert's defense was the trip-and-fall accidental shooting scenario that I already went over. The prosecution disputed this, pointing out that it wasn't a coincidence that Morris's head was the only part not found. Robert said Morris was accidentally shot in the head in the struggle. But no one could say that for sure without Morris's head to examine the wound. What if the bullet was to the back of the head? That would destroy Robert's defense and give him a motive to make sure that Morris's head was never found. The state contended that Morris was killed so Robert could assume his identity and stay underground as he feared charges related to Kathy's disappearance. Another theory is that Morris found out who Robert really was, and he was killed to keep him quiet. Or maybe Morris knew about Kathy's death or Susan's death or anything else that would put Robert Durst's freedom at risk if he talked. Robert took the stand in his own defense, and he convinced the jury of his story. Or he at least convinced them it was plausible, enough that they were left with reasonable doubt. Robert was acquitted of the murder charges in November 2003, but he was found guilty of unlawful disposal of a body. The judge from the trial, Susan Chris, was alarmed by what she saw during that trial. She told Mashable in an interview that the pictures of Morris's dismembered body were chilling because of the precision used. Like, this was not some panicked person who cut up a body for the first time. It was so perfect that she said it did not look like a first-time job. Chris also said that the prosecution was not prepared for the rigorous defense. The case may have seemed like a no-brainer, The story didn't make a lot of sense because dismembering a human body takes a certain something. And if you didn't kill the person, why would you do that? And who admits to cutting up a body and gets away with it? But the defense was led by Dick DeGarren, who is personally my first call if I ever get arrested, let's be honest. And DeGarren showed up prepared. He presented his case in these mock trials so he could identify which areas were weak and needed shoring up, which areas to avoid altogether, and which things to emphasize. He prepared Robert very well for cross-examination, which I cannot imagine was easy since Robert was and is an unpredictable personality. The judge also said that there was evidence she heard in pre-trial that was never introduced, like tape recordings from Robert's jailhouse phone calls. 
She said they were pretty incriminating. The judge didn't rule to exclude them. The state just never tried to get them entered. And then with Robert on the stand, they didn't even ask him where Morris's head was. Since the missing head was part of the circumstantial case, you'd think they would have asked and pointed out to the jury even more that the missing head was suspicious in itself. But they never did. For dismembering Morris's body, Robert was sentenced to five years with credit for time served. Then he was charged on federal weapons charges for guns that were found in his car when he was arrested in Pennsylvania. So he was sent to federal prison, but then in July 2005, he was sent back to Texas so that he could be released on parole. He was ordered to stay near his home, and if he was going to travel outside of the allowed area, he had to get permission. But being Robert Durst, he violated this restriction within a very short amount of time by traveling down to Houston and then to Galveston. In December 2005, the judge from his case was doing holiday shopping at a mall in Houston when she ran into Robert. He froze when he saw her. He was talking on his cell phone and he literally dropped it to the ground. She didn't realize that he was breaking the terms of his parole because why would she know the terms of his parole? So she ended up having just a quick conversation with him, but she noted that he was acting very nervous. And clearly, Robert knew he was violating his parole. Then Robert was caught visiting the scene of Morris Black's shooting in Galveston. For those who don't know, Galveston is an island. You can't accidentally end up there just passing through unless you're driving into the Gulf of Mexico. You only go there intentionally, so there was no real excuse Robert could have given for being there. The big concern with him showing up was that the neighbors who testified at his trial still lived there, and this would, of course, be worrisome for them and their personal security. So in January 2006, Robert was booked for this parole violation. About a month or so later, he was released, and then his parole ended at the end of 2006. This same year, Robert decided he wanted his money. All of it, not just meted out through the family trust. So he sued for his share. The family eventually settled the case where Robert would get a payout of $65 million, but then he was fully divested. He had no future claims to inheritance, profit sharing, or any other form of the family wealth. This was the final tie between Robert and his family cut for good. So here Robert is. He has millions of dollars. He was a suspect in his wife's disappearance, but the reinvestigation never led to charges. He was a suspect in Susan Berman's murder, another case growing cold with each passing year. And Robert shared space on the suspect list. He wasn't being hotly pursued. He had beaten a murder rap in Texas, and he was free and no longer on parole. Now would be a great time for Robert to lay low and just wonder at the ridiculous and unearned luck he had while fanning himself with stacks of cash. But no, Robert Durst decided to start talking to a filmmaker named Andrew Jarecki. Jarecki had made a movie called All Good Things, a fictionalized version of Robert Durst's life story. It was never hidden who this movie was about. Everything was very lightly veiled. The Susan Berman figure was named Deborah Lerman. It was always meant to be presented as a take on the Robert Durst story. For whatever reason, Robert really liked the movie, even though it implied the main character, who is based on him, 
was involved in the death of his wife, friend, and neighbor. For whatever reason, Robert liked the movie, and he agreed to sit down with Andrew Jarecki for a series of interviews. These interviews, which happened in 2010 and then again in either 2012 or 2013, were the basis of the docuseries The Jinx. In addition to these interviews in 2013, Robert was arrested and charged with trespassing after he showed up outside the homes of his brother and another family member, both people who have orders of protection against him. His brother Douglas has come out and said if Robert had the chance to kill him, he would do it. So he was legitimately afraid of Robert at this point. And while Robert was dealing with the lesser charges involved in this trespassing, what he didn't know was that Andrew Jarecki was turning over information to the police and the prosecutor out in L.A. related to Susan Berman's murder. He had uncovered some things while filming. So now the LAPD is investigating Susan Berman's murder as the Jinx docuseries was being put together. One of the biggest pieces of evidence turned over was a letter Susan Berman's stepson found. It was from March 1999, while Susan was still alive, and it was from Robert to Susan. On the envelope, Beverly Hills was misspelled the same way it was on the cadaver note that was sent to the police right after Susan's murder. The block-style handwriting is nearly identical, though it is much harder to definitively match handwriting when you are going block letter to block letter, since most people make their block letters the same way. That said, most people know how to spell Beverly. It's not clear exactly when, but Robert was confronted with this envelope during his second interview for The Jinx. The Jinx was edited to make this look like it happened in the late 2013, but other sources say it happened as early as 2012. The timeline on the making of The Jinx is fuzzy. So Robert was aware that his habit of misspelling Beverly was coming back on him even before the Jinx premiered in February 2015. Four months before the show aired, Robert started withdrawing cash from his bank accounts, large amounts, like thousands of dollars a day. In a bit over a month, he had withdrawn something like $300,000. Investigators were keeping an eye on this because they were worried he was about to take off. Then in December 2014, the 71-year-old Robert Durst was arrested again, this time for criminal mischief after he urinated on the candy rack at a CVS pharmacy in Houston, Texas. His attorney called it a medical mishap and said Robert had Asperger syndrome, which is no longer a standalone diagnosis, but it's part of an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. The symptoms are considered to overall be on the less severe side of the spectrum, though of course this varies with person and some individual symptoms can be rather severe. The attorneys did not get into any more detail over the nature of this medical mishap or how it relates to autism spectrum disorder, but this is what they gave as a defense. Robert wasn't about to fight this in court. This is basically a pay-the-fine charge. Robert apologized, and he reimbursed CVS for their lost inventory. Honestly, at this point, it's pocket change for Robert Durst, so he just paid it. So now let's get to the jinx. This was a six-episode series, and the day before the final episode aired, on March 14th, 2015, Robert was arrested 
for the murder of Susan Berman, and he was found at a hotel in New Orleans on the French Quarter. He had checked in under an assumed name, Everett Ward, and he had a fake ID. He was also working on a cash-only basis and was found with over $40,000 in $100 bills. He also had a receipt for a UPS tracking number for a package that was actually more cash that he had mailed to the hotel. We have cash, a fake ID, and they found a rubber mask that made it pretty clear to the FBI that Robert Durst had been preparing to flee and to do so in disguise. He also had maps in the hotel room, including one for Cuba, where there is, surprise, no extradition treaty. With Robert in custody, the final episode of The Jinx aired, and it showed the scene where Robert was confronted with the Beverly cadaver letter. He gets noticeably agitated and then goes to the bathroom where he was famously caught on a hot mic saying, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. Except that's an edited version of what was said. It has been rearranged. The filmmakers removed some of the comments and then reordered others. So let me give you more of it in context. Mind you, Robert is talking to himself, and he's holding kind of a back-and-forth conversation, which is something he is known to do, and he'll often not realize he's having this conversation out loud. So here is what he said based on the transcript prepared during court proceedings. There it is, you're caught. You're right, of course, but you can't imagine. They want to talk to him. That's good. I find them very frightening, and I do not want to talk to them. I don't know. The washer. Well, I don't know what you expected to get, but the rest of, and this is unintelligible, I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. Killed them all, of course. I want to do something new. There's nothing wrong about that. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the questions. What the hell did I do? So do you see the issue? The filmmakers made it sound like Robert asked and answered a question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. But the what did I do question actually came after that. And it seems to be in reference to the interview, not murdering anyone. I'm not saying this takes everything away from killed them all, of course, but it's clear some of this conversation to himself is happening out loud, and some of it is in his head because it doesn't flow. We don't know what killed them all, of course, is related to. It could be a confession, but Robert could also just be relating this back to the impression he was giving off in the interview or what he thinks people believe about him. Now, I am loath to defend Robert Durst because I certainly don't like to take up for people I think are guilty, but this manipulation of his statements to make a better ending for a quote-unquote documentary, that is not for me. It has completely changed my opinion about the jinx. It makes me wonder what other details were fudged or rearranged to tell a good story. Another question I had, and a lot of people had based on my Google searching to get the answer, is that this interview happened two or three years before the premiere of The Jinx. This hot mic moment was captured years before it was turned over to the police. I wanted to know why that was. The idea that it may have been held back to make for a more impactful gotcha moment really didn't sit well with me. But the reasoning given, which I do accept, is that this was audio only. This was not video. So they didn't even know they had it. It's when they were putting the entire documentary together that they noticed there was this audio clip 
that didn't line up with a video. When they realized what they did have, they say they did turn it over unedited, not just the clip we heard in the jinx. So, okay, let's pivot from the jinx and get back to talking about Robert Durst. He is arrested in 2015 for Susan Berman's murder, 15 years after she died. His past of bail jumping came back on him in a big way, and he was declined bail, so he's been sitting in jail waiting for trial. It took five years for the trial to begin in March 2020, with 76-year-old Robert Durst looking much older and much frailer than at the time of his arrest. Investigators could place Robert in California at the time of the murder. He flew from San Francisco to New York on December 23rd, the same day it's believed Susan Berman was murdered and the same day the cadaver letter was mailed. Robert's writing also matched the letter, though his attorneys did try to keep this match out of trial. Robert was denying that he wrote the cadaver letter. But when it was decided the evidence was going to be allowed in at trial, Robert did an about-face. He admitted he wrote the letter, but said he didn't kill Susan. Now, Robert said on the jinx the complete opposite. He said the letter could have only been mailed by the killer. But now his attorney, Dick DeGarren, said in the opening statement at the trial that Robert found Susan's body when he went to spend the holidays with her. He panicked and he ran, but he still wanted her to be found, so he wrote the cadaver letter. DeGarren said that Robert Durst just doesn't make good decisions, and his knee-jerk reaction his whole life was to run away. And DeGarren is definitely correct in saying that Robert makes bad decisions, and he runs away a lot. I mean, we have seen that. The question is, does this make him guilty or not? The trial was underway when everything in California and elsewhere began shutting down in an attempt to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The trial was going to restart in May, and then in June, and now July. I kept putting this episode off, waiting on the trial, but it was time to just do it. If the trial provides more bombshell information, I'm sure I'll regret not waiting a couple more weeks but I'll definitely give an update at the beginning of a future episode when this case is resolved. So my thoughts on these cases. Looking back at the first part of this two-part series, I think it's interesting that Robert Durst was being looked at for stranger abductions. That seems outside of his MO. Even if he did kill Kathy, Morris, and Susan— He has not so far been convicted in any of those deaths, so I will say, allegedly, all of those deaths gave Robert something. Either it covered up a previous crime, it gave him a fake identity, or it stopped his wife from leaving him. Or perhaps Kathy's death was the result of a domestic violence incident and it was not premeditated, allegedly speaking. So with those three, you can see there's a motive. Even if Robert didn't do it, big if, there's a motive. So now let's go back and look at the two cases with strangers that I discussed last week, Lynn Schultz and Karen Mitchell. One question I have to ask is, was Lynn Schultz a stranger? We know she was a customer of Robert's at his little health food store in Vermont, but did they know each other more than that? We don't have any indication they did, but we have to also remember no one was even asked at the time about this because they thought Lynn left on her own. And here we are 48 years later. Who's even going to remember if Lynn and Robert knew each other or spent time together? So that's a giant question mark. As for Karen Mitchell, who went missing while walking to work in California, I just don't see much of a link to Robert Durst, but I do agree with what her family has said. 
whatever it takes to get Karen's case out there and more attention on it is a good thing, even if Robert Durst doesn't make a really viable suspect. So that leaves us with the murder of Susan Berman and the disappearance of Kathy Durst. Now, at 77 years old, Robert Durst is on trial for Susan's death. We will see what happens, hopefully this month. But without more evidence in regard to Kathy Durst's case, her presumed murder, let's be honest, it seems unlikely charges will come. I hope for the sake of her family that the person who knows what happened decides to talk or at least gets caught talking to himself and gives them the answers they long for. The answers that will allow Kathy to come home for a proper burial. 